Hello and welcome to another episode of the Daily Remedy Podcast. Today we're here with Dr. Catherine London, primary care physician out of Maine, who has experienced, you could say, unique interactions with both the Maine State Licensing Board as well as the DEA and has channeled those adversarial experiences into subject matter expertise for opioid policy. And with that, I'd like to welcome Dr. London. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. So Dr. London, uh, for the listening audience who may not be familiar with your work, can you begin by telling your story and how you became this leader in the opioid policy? So, yeah, so I moved to Maine in 2015. And prior to that time, um, I was in New York City. I was a, um, an assistant professor at Cornell in New York City. Um, and I'd been there for five years. And before that, I was in Massachusetts in the Boston area. Um, I had my own practice, but I also taught for both BU and Tufts. I'd lived there out of residency. So I was there for about 13 years. So I'd been in the academic world um, for a long time. My kids were getting older. And as the older one was heading off to college, I really I had moved to New York for the kids. Um, and they really wanted to be near extended family. And so I, when I decided to move to Maine, it was really to, um, and I'd done a lot of work in the access to primary care for patients, you know, you know, with our, our national groups and lobbying in both Washington and on the state level. So I, I had a real need to want to serve underserved populations so I, I did a lot of soul searching and I, I wanted to go to a rural underserved area and ended up in a part of Maine called Washington County, which is on the coast um, near Canada. Um, it's where lo lobsters and blueberries come from. It's really quite beautiful. And it was actually one of the areas targeted along with the Appalachian area when people talk about prescription opioid abuse. So, you know, when people want to go attacking the Sacklers and everything else, it was the other area that was very highly targeted, which I didn't know. I had no idea prior to moving. Um, you know, I saw it as an area that was vastly underserved and decided to, to make the move, which, you know, my family was up in arms, like, you're this academic, blah, 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 what are you mm. doing? You know? um, you know, and, um, and, and so I did. So, and I very quickly saw how hard hit the area was. There was a lot of substance use disorder. There was a call for more people to get their buprenorphine waivers or suboxone waivers. And so I did, you know, um, it was also, we had not expanded um, Medicaid. I made a move to try to do that, which the governor at the time was not politically on that side. I butted heads there. So that may have been one of the reasons I came under targeting. I don't know, but it might be. Um, <laughs> and um, I was at a federally qualified health center and they kind of sat on my waiver. Um, even all, you know, I designed the program and, and, you know, for us to start treating substance use disorder, we had psych psychiatrists on site and, and everything else and the board of the FQHC had approved it and they kept sitting on it. And so four months of working there, it was enough and we mutually separated. And I immediately started um, my own practice um, where I started out literally going door to door. I didn't have office space yet and trading people right out of their homes and started using my waiver. Um, because the need was just that intense. Hit my 30 cap immediately because the first year that you're prescribing, you can only treat 30 patients. This um, is the X I, waiver you're referring to. My X waiver, exactly. Um, and I had met a, a retired cardiothoracic surgeon at the health center and he and I had spoken about working together. He wanted to start a wound clinic, which was also vastly necessary in the region. So I was looking for office space. He had meantime gone back down to Southern Maine and we stayed in touch. And he came up one day and, and accompanied me going door to door and saw the need, saw the tremendous need. And he said, you know, 
I'll get my X waiver if you run the program. And since I'd already designed it, I was like, fine, awesome. Cause that would give us another 30 slots. Certainly. So, um, so I encouraged him to do this and he took, you know, the exam and we were waiting for his waiver to come through. And um, I had to go down to New York to close on my apartment was I was selling my apartment. And um, so this is now 2016 and he was covering the practice while I was down. So he couldn't do any of the, the buprenorphine prescriptions, but he could do all the other controlled substances. And he is an older gentleman and he was, I would call it reckless in his prescribing. And we had an altercation on the phone, <laughs> a real disagreement. And that was the end of our working relationship. He went his way and I went mine and that was fine. Except he, he and he decided to start his own practice. Good for mm -hmm. him, right? Except he was telling people that we were still working together. And I started to get my own reputation in terms of I had meanwhile found office space. I'd started a real program and, you know, where I did real groups and people got to know that I was pretty strict and, and I, you know, and, and, and everything else. And I, unbeknownst to me, he was doing this and, um, and word started to get back to me that he was kind of this Dr. Candyman, right. like, like really irresponsibly. Um, and then things would happen. Like a patient would no show and I'd be checking the P our, our prescription monitoring program and see that they would see him, you know, as I'd be checking for their visit and he was doing some dangerous combinations and increasing meds and things that scared me, frankly. You know, where I was really worried that something dangerous was going to occur. Um, and a, a lot of people came to me and said, can't you do anything? Can't you do anything? And innocently, you know, I, I said, you know, so I called, actually, I called SAMHSA to see if they could pull his waiver. They told me to call the DEA. I called the DEA and who first said, oh, have patients call, blah, blah, blah. And eventually they told me, call the board because the board can run a PMP check on him. And so I did, not thinking twice. The only, ex the only experience I'd ever had with a medical board was back you know, pre-2010 when I lived in Massachusetts. I had been a, a monitor for um, another physician who needed a, a, a practice monitor. So mm -hmm. it didn't occur to me that there would be anything but you know, a positive experience. So I called the board and I told them my concerns and I was turned around and threatened that if I didn't put a complaint in that the law was that I had to put a complaint in if I knew anything, wow. you know, um, per you know X and Y Z statute. So I took what I knew and I wrote it up and submitted it. Well, he turned around and meanwhile, okay, so he turned around and wrote a counter complaint claiming that I was crazy, that I yelled and screamed, mm. and got patients who I had stopped prescribing controlled substances for because they had violated their narcotics contract to say the same thing. Wow. Uh, and, and, I, and, and if you looked, it was so obvious, like they, all their stories were exactly the same. Yeah. It, was, it was so clearly collusion and retribution, but the board came after me. And meanwhile, one of his patients did die, um, but nothing ever happened to him. And the board came after me with a vengeance. I mean, a vengeance. Um, and uh, like just, it was outrageous at first, you know, and it didn't occur to me to get a lawyer because I had done nothing wrong. Right. It, you know, it yeah. just, Oh, they wanted records. Sure. Here, have them. You know, like it, it's just like, I, I was naive and stupid. And, um, and um, after a year and a half or two years of their coming after me, I finally, um, we were headed towards an adjudicatory hearing and I was talked into by my attorneys who felt that I was not going to have a fair hearing and they were worried that my license would be suspended and that would obviously affect my practice and my patients. Um, I signed a consent decree, um, which I made it through, <laughs> uh, where I for a while had to have a monitor for my controlled substances, you know, and hand in, you know, charts for, you know, I, this went on for you know, six months to a year, whatever it was. Um, they looked over my charts and they wanted me basically to taper everybody, all my chronic opioid patients, which was indiscriminate, arbitrary, capricious, yeah. horrible. It was, you know, let's torture patients, you know, it was, um, 
it was, it was not a, a positive experience by any means. Um, and then I had to go take coursework and other nonsense. Um, they did send the DEA my way. Um, I survived of that course. because I, my, I mean, it, the, the coursework was actually funny. One of them was in charting and I, you know, you send your records ahead of time in there and I get like all, oh, your records are great. <laughs> Yeah. So it was actually really, it was actually funny. You know, it was like one of those, I'm like, I, I knew this, you know, it was, so I went through, through it all. And, but not before they had raked my rap, reputation through the holes. And of course you get, you're, you're in the database and I got reflexive action. I hadn't held a Massachusetts license since 2011, but I, they basically took away my inchoate right to renew. New York, where I held a license, may, I was gonna let, the only reason I kept my New York license was because I've always worked the uh, marathon. Um, right. I first did Boston when I lived there. And when I moved to New York, I did, I was, I captained one of the tents at the finish line. And I promised the medical director I would continue to do that. But in New York, you have to maintain your license to do that. And, um, they and I was going to let it go and, and not continue. They, they forced me to continue to stay licensed in New York, but there was no way for me to get. They made me also sign a consent decree and I would be on probation until I came back to New York and did like something. And it's like, but I'm not coming back to New York, you know, and so there's like no way out. And yeah. I finally this year just told them I'm not renewing and they called me up. And, you know, and when I finished the main probation, they just were like, well, that's nice. And they still wouldn't do anything. And I just, so I finally, they were kind of rude and obnoxious. And I just finally said, well, I'm not renewing, you know, so do whatever you need to do to me. And I haven't heard anything yet. So it's, it's um, interesting but I'll happily how, litigate it at this point. Yeah. It's interesting how physicians in your situation find themselves kind of experiencing the same templated format where there's these cookie cutter complaints, the same kind of generic action by the state medical licensing board, which is really administered by the attorneys, not so much the physicians who are on the medical licensing board. And then you kind of go through this rigmarole of having your reputation destroyed and essentially having to go to the ringer and being flogged in public. Where did you develop the strength to kind of overcome this and then actually start to decide go to law school? Well, it was so clear that there was no due process involved like the, 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 the whole process that I went through, there was, there was clearly no fairness. The, the, this other guy who had done something wrong where a patient did die, there was harm and nothing ever happened. Like, are you, and yeah. I'm like, are you kidding? And, and that it was, you know, you can go read through my consent decree. It's up on, you know, they, even though I'm through it, it's still up on the website, however long they're going to keep it there. And it's any obvious to anyone who reads it, like what went down. And, and yet, <laughs> So the bi and and you and you know the bias is clear and everything else and I'm like this is atrocious. Yeah. And then I start reading more cases and hearing more stories and the more people I talk to and I'm like, this is horrible. Um. And I that's when I decided that that you know I've been so into helping patients and watching medicine be ruined that it's time for me to start helping protect physicians. You know, I graduated, you know, Yale Medical School in 1995 and it's time to change my focus. And so I'm still practicing. Um, I've been practicing through law school and I, and, and when the, the, the real kicker was, um, I was already in law school when the DEA came to my office and um, when they handed me a subpoena for medical records, I'm like, that's a fourth amendment violation that they can mm -hmm. sit there and ask for medical records based on an administrative subpoena. There's nobody, you know, I look at it as a privilege that patients tell me things, you know, it's an honor and a privilege that I sit down and I get people's stories and that the government can just come in and, and demand that based on what I, I, I was horrified. And that, um, because of that, I've now also completed Maine Laws, one of the few in the country that offers an additional certification in privacy law. And I, th this paper that I just submit, you know, just wrote was the last piece that um, I needed to complete that certification process. So I will also be getting that when I graduate. Uh, congratulations on that. Uh, 
before we jump into your study, I want to talk a little bit about this concept of due process. As an attorney, due process is a very important concept in law that physicians don't get and allow their due process rights to be violated all the time. Talk to us about how due process is being violated among healthcare providers in the opiate epidemic and how that's being used to justify these unconstitutional investigations. So the due process is a constitutional right, okay? It's in the fifth and the 14th amendments to the constitution and it prohibits the arbitrary deprivation of life, liberty, or property by the government. Um, so your, your substantive rights. Yes. And, substantive due process and, rights. Okay, and, and that's both in the fifth and the 14th amendment. So it falls to the states through the 14th amendment. And, and so we have, our licenses are a property right, right? So you can't, it's, it's a property right in the ability to practice um, and amongst other things. So it's, it, there's, so there's more than one way due process comes along. So to just come at us and not go through all the normal, so by depriving us the normal ways, when you think about like when someone's arrested, you're innocent until proven guilty. That's not the way it works in administrative yeah. law. And they don't file, follow the normal rules of evidence and all these other things. And, and it's just this, it's truly kangaroo court. You know, when, when you talk about like what kangaroo mm -hmm. court is, it, it, administrative proceedings really are. And it's... Um, is, it, is it willful? Is there a willful intent to take administrative actions and turn them criminal on the parts of the DEA and DOJ? I'd say yes, because the DEA, their whole way that they work, they have no oversight because they're self-funded. That whole diversion task force is funded through licensing fees and through when they, um, they uh, take fees when they, when, when they uh, attach them, when they, are, when they grab somebody. And, and so they, they never have to go to Congress. Forfeitures. Um, and, and so, yeah, when they get it through forfeitures, so they never have to go to Congress for money. So they, through appropriations, so they don't come under any scrutiny. Um, so it's a skirting of the law and a skirting of constitutional processes. And it's, you know, administrative law is huge. And you have to, I don't think people realize just how men, how much of the law in this country, both on a federal and a state level, happens through administrative proceedings. So, but it's a, a egregious the way it's happening in medicine. It's a whole other level. We are the most regulated industry and it's our livelihoods, right? And um, well, what's interesting and, and is it that, crosses over to that criminal piece, which is just horrifying. What's interesting is alluding to the whole concept of administrative law is another concept that's very important, that of federalism. Did you ever experience the state licensing agency and state regulatory agencies almost work or collude with federal agencies in a way that would deprive you of your ability to defend yourself? And talk to us a little bit about that. So they do work together, you know, and that, that, you know, and there's nothing unfortunately illegal about that. So they'll hmm. turn around and hand stuff over. So yeah, so you'll have the AAG who's working with the board turn around and hand stuff to the DEA or to the Department of Justice on the federal level. And that's not illegal. But it's like, but ones where you turn around and you're like, but, but, and the only way to fight that then is to turn around and, you know, work, have a criminal attorney then not have that evidence admitted, right? To turn around and do motions, one motion after another. And then, but, you know, it's, it, and you have to be savvy enough to do that, to say this was not, this was not, this is the fruit of the poisonous tree. And, and that this was not gotten in a way that is okay. Um, you know, and, and anything that the DEA has gotten that wasn't through normal channels also can't be used in a criminal proceeding. They got it through their administrative proceedings. They can't use that criminally. That is not okay, but they do it all the time. Look how many times physicians, because they, all their assets were 
see, you know, for, they have been seized, they are, they're desperate, they're broke, and they turn around and they sign a, sign a plea agreement, you know, yeah. and, and, and there's countless cases of that. Um, so it's just such a disservice to all of medicine. But unlike so many of the physicians who have been targeted, you actually have decided to become an opioid leader in terms of policy and rectifying some of the wrongs. And as you alluded to in your study at the University of Maine School of Law, you are working on privacy studies. And one study in particular is, and I title it, Predicting Drug Diversion, the Use of Data Analytics in Prescription Drug Monitoring. Before we go into this, can you give a brief description of what this study is? So I basically, you know, so my background before even medicine, I was a software engineer. So I'm, I, I wow. wear my geek, my geek propeller very proudly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and so there's always been this kind of concept when you look at algorithms and you look at, and, and so this goes for, you know, all of math and all of like how, when you have computing going on and, and you know, now we're into this world of big data you know, so we've got Google doing analytics on us and our shopping habits and everything else, right? And all the insurance companies are doing it. And everywhere you go, you know, you're being tracked, you know, get right. over it. And if you don't know that already, learn it. Well, <laughs> it's a whole nother world when they are targeting the prescription data. And the, right. the prescription monitoring was touted as this tool to help physicians so that we would make sure that people aren't, you know, that, that we would be able to know if a patient is diverting and so that we would, you know, help, you know, make sure that if someone isn't, you know, a, 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 someone with substance use disorder. What a lot of crap. It's totally mm -hmm. a law enforcement tool and it's totally dressed up as you know, being this clinical tool. And the biggest issue is that it's a black box algorithm. It's never been exposed to any outside verification and it truly is garbage in, garbage out. Um, the more that we've learned about it, the more that we um, have been able to get a glimpse of what kind of data mining is going on, the more problematic it is. Well, well, let's talk about that because you allude to it very eloquently when you talk about odds ratio. Uh, first, uh, explain the concept of odds ratio for those who may not understand it, the listening audience, and then explain how you beautifully use odds ratio to demonstrate bias in the model. Okay, so, so let's start with that. The entire database was based on just Ohio and then generalized to the entire country. Now, that's amazing. We are not just Ohio. We're a yeah. big country. We are that is one of the issues that America, you know, why we can't generalize with what, you know, even any of the European countries do is because we are so vast and right. so diverse. So, all right. So odds ratio, it's a measure of the association between an exposure and an outcome. It's the odds that an outcome's going to occur given a particular exposure compared to the odds that the outcome is going to occur in the absence of that exposure. Okay. It's a, it's, it, it's a, it's the kind of a risk probability, the proportion of those who are exposed with this outcome compared to like the total population. Right. Okay. So, um, so you have an odds ratio of 10.1, that's a thousand 10% increase in the odds of an outcome. Um, and it, it's not a multiplication of the likelihood. So it's a measure of the projected likelihood that something's going to occur. Right. But, but then you, you have to take that with it. Then you can then look at the confidence interval. Okay. So a confidence interval is the 95% probability that your true odds ratio, so your true chance that the, it's likely to occur between the upper and lower limits, assuming that you don't have bias or confounding in your data. All right, so there are general confidence interval intervals basically tell you how much random error you have in your data. And right. so the width of your confidence interval, interval gives, you, gives you that estimate. And that's where their algorithm falls apart. So if you take a look 
you know, from it starts out not too bad, you know, a little wider than I would like. So from zero to 190. So they, they do these three digit scores. Um, and so from zero to 190, overdose risk score of zero to 190, the odds ratio is 1.0 as a reference. Except that the true odds ratio is 7.9 with a confidence interval that goes from 6.1 to 10.1. So we're already starting from, you know, okay. Now you go to 200 to 290, where they call it an odds ratio of two. Well, the real one is 10.1 and your range is 7.8 to 13. And it yeah. just gets worse from there. We're at 700 to 790, where it's an odds, they call it an odds ratio of 38. It's really 76 with a confidence interval of 55 to 103 and so on. It's, these are huge. These are extremely large errors. And, yeah. and, and so as an example, you know, we graphed out it's basically overpredicting the overdose yeah. risk. And, and, and so for the listening take, audience, and, I just want to let you guys know that um, I will post a link to the study. So please go ahead and take a look at the study as we're talking. And so then, so, so we just like, if you, I put the graph just highlighting the errors at 56, 60 and 125%. So mm -hmm. it calculated 54 times the means where if you're at 90 morphine equivalents, that really should be reflected as 4,500 morphine equivalents. Yeah. And so if we compare, you know, as a comparison, if we're talking 200,000 dead from COVID would be 10 million dead. Yeah, I think that's a really comparison. important point. As a matter of fact, that is probably the most important part, at least for me, in my humble opinion, and is correlating the sources 41 and 42 in the write-up itself. You correlate error in the model with miscalculations on appropriate doses of certain opioids as calculated by millimorphine equivalents. And how many physicians throughout the country, providers and nurses, what have you, have been arrested, indicted and convicted off of this faulty, erroneous algorithm? It's, it's remarkable what you found. And as much as possible, can you simplify that correlation between the error rate and the true millimorphine equivalents for the audience? And I know it's not a simple thing to do. Right. So, so 90 is, is the CDC is been caught like in Maine, that's been codified as the cutoff. Yeah. Right. In 2016, becoming law. Right. It is it, in 2016 became law of that's the cutoff. That's as yeah. much as we're allowed to do. Um, and, and so it, it's a huge red flag to the exceptions that we have to go through and the hoops that I have to jump through to go above that are enormous. And, and, you know, you, you get all this stuff, you know, about when you go above that and you have to have an exception code and this and that and everything else. And, um, and you're flagged as, yeah. as, you know, the patient is, and so were you. Um, so, you know, and, and again, these, and so the NARC score then also of the patient will go up, right? Cause they're right. higher. So the, so that's another flag that's gonna go. Up. And so the, the, it's, it's identifying as high risk for opioid use disorder so all these things are going to get flagged, but so it's, it's the, so the, you're going to now flag the providers. You're going to flag the, the, the prescribers. You're going to flag the patients. You're the models are trained on objectives that don't give you a proxy for what you're interested in, which is you're, you're really supposed to be interested in who might have substance use disorder at an exposure, but that's not what you're getting to. Exactly. You're instead you're you're looking at like it's flagging chronic pain patients who have comorbidities as high risk it's looking at things like oh you're rural you've had trauma you have multiple prescribers because you go to a university or you go to a clinic that has multiple people you know because now doctors are all employees or you relocated because you got a job or, and you pay cash because now it's always needing a prior authorization and you can't wait a week to get your pain meds. You know, so the algorithm is falsely seeing all those as doctor shopping and drug and it means that you are either diverting or it's substance use. <laughs> That's really fascinating and how the errors in the data lead to misconceptions that discriminate against certain patients and target certain providers. Uh, that, that is an incredibly, incredibly important finding. And thank you so much for what you discovered through your work. It's amazing. Uh, one of the solutions, or at least 
potential administrative remedy you allude to is going to the FDA and asking them to verify this. Talk a little bit about what the FDA's oversight should be and how they're falling short. So yeah, so Professor Oliva actually of Seton Hall is the one who um, is, I, I have to give her credit because uh, she, she is the one who pointed to this and I picked up on her work from that. So it's basically, so if you look, the FDA has the, yes, they do oversight. And um, it, because this is a clinical support tool, right? And so it makes them subject to FDA regulation. And in, in this FDA regulates medical devices and software as a medical device is considered part of clinical decision um, support tools. So if you look at the section 3060 of the 21st Century Cures Act, there are five exemptions to that, um, to this software as a medical device, um, which this does not meet, right? Um, so for, for, for the FDA to, valid, to validate this as a medical device, you need to have a clinical association between the software's output and its targeted clinical condition. So you have to show that the software is gonna process input data to generate accurate, reliable output that achieves its intended purpose in the context of clinical care. But that's exactly what these don't do. The PDMPs right. are not reducing overdose deaths or improving patient outcomes. It would fail on safety and effectiveness criteria that the FDA puts out. And that's really and, interesting because it doesn't meet the clinical end, but it's certainly used for legal ends. And in a way, right. the data becomes the due process. So why is this rampant misuse of the data allowed to permeate so widely across the country? Well, the FDA has not stepped in. And, and then again, you if you look, they're housed in all different places. Some people house them. You know, some don't hide that it's a law enforcement tool. They have it housed. You know, if you look at the history, so you have to remember, so PDMPs, the reason they've been allowed, they started on paper, right? The mm -hmm. earliest ones were all the way back, you know, really, really, really early. And, and they got, 1918 was the first one. It was rescinded, but that was the earliest one. And then they started, and you know, they were um, 1939, 1943, but these were all those triplicate prescriptions we all used to write on back mm -hmm. in the day. Um, and they were only for schedule two drugs. And the Supreme Court was, that was a 19, and it's still good law, 1977, a case called Roe v. Whalen, that they were not unconstitutional because they, they felt that they didn't, that it was part of the state police powers. Okay. Mm. And it was, but they were, again, they were based on paper, static, very limited information, you know, and it, it, it it's, but then these rampant electronic ones with all this stuff, they haven't been challenged. Um, and the FDA has not stepped in in any way. Um, so that's, but if you look at where they're housed, they're housed in all different places. Some are in the Board of Pharmacy, some are in the Department of Health, some are in professional licensing, and five of them are actually in law enforcement. Yeah, that's so, really you know, interesting. Some are in substance abuse. So, you know, it, so we haven't even, this is that whole, we're feder a federalist republic. So. Where are they housed and who has access? You know, the DEA can't, DEA can directly get to it in some states and not in other states, but they get around that and now they're creating their own database. And that's really frightening. Um, you know, it, they still can get to it with an administrative subpoena pretty easily. So it's not like it's a hard bar for them to get to. Um, well, let me ask you this though. Simple. So for somebody who may not get this, when it's just simple, basic data, it's one thing. But when the data is aggregated, it becomes more complex. It becomes something different. How does that process take place? And how does the risk of abuse take place the more complex the data becomes? So you have to understand that, like, so right now, when you look at what's in these things now, I mean, and then they're getting more and more and more. I mean, as it is, you're, you're dealing with, it's, it, it tracks all the information about the patient, all the information about the prescriber. It, it's getting, it, we, you know, like we have to put a, um, a diagnosis. So that's already a huge violation right there, right? You know, it's, it's 
Many of them are tracking marijuana now. Um, in addition, many of them track methadone. Many of them are tracking, you know, so there's all these, many have data from child welfare cases, drug court, arrests and convictions, Narcan dispensing, you know, then and, and if there's any, been any disciplinary actions on any registrant, if there's been lost or stolen drugs, you know, and then you have the insurance companies are getting access. Marijuana dispensaries are getting access, you know, and then all of us who get these, you know, these unsolicited report cards that compare you to prescribers, you know, in your state, you know, that's a chilling effect, you know, <laughs> really, you know, you, you see that you're, you know, higher than average, you're going to cut down on what you're doing because yeah. you know, you're going to be targeted. Um, it's, it, it, it's just how we work, you know, how we're human beings. Um, now we know, and we know that, that a priest has been looking to get the, an auto database or real estate database. How is that going to, you know, we already know redlining happens. What's going to happen now? So the more data that goes in there, we know just on a retail le level that those have been incredibly racist and in how they've been done. What else is going to happen here? So I'm, I'm horrified by all of this. Um, from a privacy point of view, this is really disturbing. It, it certainly is. And I think the more input you have, the greater the likelihood of attribution error and the greater the likelihood of biases against disenfranchised individuals. So we have all this data. What do we do with it now? Can we help develop new opioid policies? Can we help rectify erroneous convictions? But what do we do with this data? Well, the first thing is that the, the algorithm needs sunlight. You know, yeah. it needs to be looked at by people outside of a priest. And, and th this, this study that they supposedly just did, it wasn't. It was, it was two states and it was just a, a questionnaire. That is not studying the algorithm. Yeah. Oh <laughs> my God, that is not validating your algorithm. Yeah, just shut up. So that needs to happen. We need to know exactly what variables are being looked at and everything else. So that, that's number one. Um, I, I don't think the NARCS care score should be in there at all. I think that if you want to use a PDMP, let us all look at it and validate in our own way. Do not use a NARCS care score at all. That's number one. Um, because because do, it, it, there's so many different reasons that people have to go to more than one pharmacy and everything else and all the other stuff that, that that's just nonsense. Um, and this, this idea of ranking, it, it needs to go away. Yeah. Um, you know, th this, and this look at, well, there's my opinion of the DEA should have just nothing to do with physicians. That's my personal opinion. Um, yeah, we've done so much harm to pain patients and access to to care there. That and the 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 the, uh, the irony is that the real pill mills, the few that there were, were shut down. You know, more than a decade ago, and and to and the majority of black market prescription pills probably didn't come from doctor's prescription diverting. It came from theft from warehouses. So yeah. <laughs> the irony is, is it was the DEA at fault the whole time. And they're just trying to point the finger elsewhere. And so we need the DEA looked at. And yeah. I, I want to see that congressional inquiry. Um, I want the accountability elsewhere and let doctors do their jobs appropriately. Yeah. And, you know, and I would like to see due process standards in place in how boards of medicine work. I, I, I'm not holding my breath on that one. It, the problem is it costs money and nobody wants to put the money there. Yeah. Um, but you certainly, you know, it, the way it's working right now is, is horrendous. You know, it, it, the minimal I will tell people is, you know, the board is not your friend and do not respond on your own ever get a get a get a, a lawyer you know lawyer yeah. up right away never do it on your own it, um, it's amazing how many physicians are unaware of that and simply walk into these processes with their eyes closed only to basically just line themselves up for the galley it, it's amazing because well, everybody thinks oh well i i didn't do anything wrong so i'm fine and they think the people who who get dinged did something wrong and it's like no no i mean People know exceptionalism, me, yeah. You know, people know me from my work in the AFP and everything else. They know I'm a straight shooter. I did nothing wrong. This was just, you know, 
you know, I'm right now like they, they <laughs> there's a claim, an unadjudicated claim that another doctor who admittedly screwed up claims that I yelled at her on the phone and the board wants me to do sign a consent decree over that. Wow. Even though I, number one, I didn't, but they're just basically believing her story. Um, even it's though- It's funny how things get so subjective in that manner where when you don't have due process, there is this vast amount of subjectivity that comes into these disciplinary actions. So, so I'm supposed to do a year of psychotherapy with monthly reporting to the board and two anger management classes. I'm like, uh, go sit and pound sand. It's not going to happen. Unbelievable. Um, but let me ask you this. Um, so soon you will be both a physician and an attorney, even though in many ways you know more about administrative law than most people in this country, which is amazing in its own right. What role do the courts have at the federal and state level? What roles do the courts have to helping fix all of this mess that has led us in the opioid epidemic? Oh. So it's gonna be little by little. I mean, like, like so I'm, I'm doing right now, I'm in our, our juvenile justice clinic, you know, because that's obviously a lot of kids, when kids get into trouble, Number one, when when a child ends up in the juvenile justice system, to me, it's a family we have failed. It's a child that we didn't identify. And substance use will often start at a young age, partly from what we start to do when we start to criminalize adolescents and adolescents acting out. Um, and and I think that's the place to start um, by starting to have more community services. We and and that's where the changes have to start. Um, we have to stop criminalizing a lot of this activity and go back to treating. And, you know, when we, that whole harm reduction, um, piece that, you know, until we take that slant, in my opinion, we should legalize all drugs and tax us not out of it and have a safe supply. That's now, my opinion. Can the courts um, adjudicate harm reduction as a form of interpretation law, essentially create case law where harm reduction is considered standard of care? On some things, not on everything. Like we have drug court, we have, you know, there's the ways to do diversion. It, so yes and no. Um, so it, it depends. I'm going to give the lawyer answer of it depends. <laughs> um, so, on, you know, in, in there'll be times that, yeah, you can do treatment, you can do this, you can do that so that you can keep some, maybe keep someone from ending up in the system over and over and over again. Um, but so much of it is getting, can we start the prevention piece back? You know, this goes all the way back to Reagan when he closed appropriately the state hospitals. We didn't get enough community services all the way back then. And so we need to start implementing. We need so much more, like just even looking at like when kids, first of all, we shouldn't have juvenile prisons. Let's start from there. You know, if, if you do need to deal with some sort of intensive treatment facility for a child, it shouldn't be a prison. Um, and don't tell me they're not, these detention centers are and they're horrid. So that needs to change right there. We need more community-based intensive kind of services. And we need to change that whole model. Um, and then we need to have a way to transition them back into adulthood and into the community. Um, and then we need to keep that model and raise it up, right? Because we all know brain development goes into the mid-20s, right? 25, 26, 27, until your brain is fully developed. So, and that's so much of the age when all this crap goes on. And, and a lot of the damage from opioid use disorder and other substance use disorder, we need, we really need to wrap our heads around what does that mean to do harm reduction? And that means we can't just have methadone be at a clinic that you go to and that you, you know, that is in some weird part of town that you can't get to, that is only <laughs> open early in the morning. I have fisher, you know, the fishermen in Washington County, they're on their boats at three, four, five in the morning. They can't do methadone, you know? It's, yeah. So it, it, that's absurd. The fact that this, you know, 50, 60 years later, that's how we're still doing it, it is outrageous. And buprenorphine is not gonna work for everybody. So you need to, to meet people where they're at. Um, mm -hmm. You know, what is it, Switzerland that does heroin, you know, as well yeah. as, as treatment and people work. So, so let's, we need to get to a safe supply so people stop dying. Let's start from there. You know, 100,000 dead, 100,000 dead. Like, yeah. let's, can we start from there? 
Um, you know, and, and, and again, I, I'd rather see a safe supply and tax us not out of it so that we can just start working backwards from there. Uh, that's, you know, meet people where they're at. In terms of positive changes, things that make you feel like we're moving in the right direction, namely the uh, public nuisance ordinance in Oklahoma and California, or the Supreme Court reviewing the definition of good faith. Do you see things moving in a right direction or do you still see us going back and forth? It's still a lot of back and forth. We're not there yet. There's too many, there's too many that are, there's too many, there's not enough mobility in the right direction. I think there's more of an appetite in the public, but you still have like these pockets who, I mean, you have shows like Dope Sick, you know, and you kind of look and you kind of go seriously, you know, they're getting, they're doing that again, you know, that, that, that narrative is still out there and, and the damage from prop and, you know, and, and those people need to be held accountable. And um, that I, I, I'm astounded. And, and the number of people who buy into that and hold on to that, um, I, it's reprehensible to me. So would you say that this is a statutory play, that there needs to be legislation that makes harm reduction and incentivizes safe drug use practices? I mean, yeah, it's going to be a rewrite of the Controlled Substance Act. Yeah. That has to happen, you know, and, and, a, and, a, and look and redefine the role of the DEA or abolish it, it would be my opinion. But um, I, that's not going to happen tomorrow. <laughs> well, well, I think, Dr. London, you're uniquely positioned because, one, you are a physician practicing in this space. Two, you are now well-versed in law, so to be a full attorney. But three, you also have experience in advocacy, lobbying, and public policy. So if you were to put your hat on and kind of imagine where you could allocate all your resources, as unrealistic as that may sound, allocate all your resources, where do you think the greatest benefit would lie? Would it lie in Congress, with the courts, or the state? Where would you invest your time and effort? So I I would have... I would ask Congress to either totally rewrite, revisit this, the Controlled Substance Act, and 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 consider and the DEA needs to their role needs to change. Um, it needs to just be focused on trafficking um, yeah. of illicit substances. Period, um, and the movement of licit needs to just be under the FDA. Um, yeah. I think the DEA has done a, a piss poor job on the rest and um, it's done too much damage is what it shows me that there's been a trajectory since the seventies straight up in terms of that's all we've seen. Yeah. You can see the trajectory from that, from the enactment of the CSA to today in terms of overdose. And that to me says that this is a, failed experiment and if so that to me says that we need legislation this needs a legislative fix to as a beginning point um and that's a whole lot of money that could then be spent elsewhere if you take that money that is right now being spent the trillions that go towards the dea and instead invest that in community resources that would be huge that would be huge um, and that's what I would like to see. Certainly. Um, and Dr. Lynn, I want to thank you so much for your time and your insight. Your paper has done wonders at really delineating in clear terms the impact that these metrics have had on enforcing not clinical outcomes, but legal violations of due process. And I think that that's a very important step to getting things right, increasing transparency. Uh, for the audience, uh, can you, I guess, uh, leave us with maybe a more personal commentary on a time when you were most down, when you felt most overwhelmed? Where did you develop the strength to move forward? And did you envision yourself in those most low moments being as productive and as effective as an advocate as you are now? 
Oh, oh no. When I, when I signed that consent decree, I, I mean, I, I was definitely passively suicidal. I'm not going to, you know, lie. It was bad. Um, um, to the point where, I mean, I, I'm down in Portland right now because of school, but I have my home is in Millbridge, Maine, I, uh, in the woods. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, when you live in the woods and there's other critters that attack your dogs and the rest of it, you are a gun owner. I had to lock my guns away. You know, I, you know, that was just, you know, I was that low. Um, and you know, I have kids, so they they were like, no, we still need you, mom. You know, they're grown now, so they were like, we still need you, mom. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was there's a deep resilience, you know, I come from tough stock. Um, and, you know, I have a great family. I really do. Um, like, like, you know, my family of origin, we have our ups and downs, but we're there for each other in the end. And, um, that helped, um, the patient, you know, my, my patients didn't leave me, you know, like despite all mm-hmm. this bull, you know, there are the people who are, look, there are the people who are going to talk crap about you everywhere, you know, and the haters are going to hate, you know, um, but I don't have to answer to them. You know, that's, I have to remember that I'm not here for them. I'm here to do what I think is right and follow that path. And I know what I've done right and wrong. You know, I know in my heart what is right and wrong. I know if I've done the right thing or the wrong thing and I just keep moving forward. And, um, and, and that's, that's all I can do. And so now, yeah, when I take a client to court, you know, or I help a patient, those are the wins, right? Those, yeah. those are the, the wins. And the rest of it is, is just chatter. You know, it's, you know, COVID's brought out a lot of it. A lot of people have seen the kind of, you know, all of us have had to deal with kind of the nonsense that I've had to be dealing a lot with. And, and uh, it's just like, I don't even let it come in anymore. And there's a lot of work to do and, and, um, and uh, a lot of rights to be wronged. And I, I, I see when I see colleagues being sent to prison and, and I know they shouldn't be, that's, that has to change. Well, certainly, thank you so much for that open reflection, uh, Dr. London. Your work is inspiring, and I would encourage everybody listening to this podcast to please take a look at that research paper and digest through all the information. It is worth the time reading. So thank you so much, Dr. London. Thank you for having me. Okay, bye-bye.